0: Hey guys, I'm Lead Pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com. Or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Hey, I wanted to start by asking this morning and and just see, you know, because, well, I'm asking, but I kind of know the answer. And the question is this, has any, anybody ever suffer from church hurt? Anybody ever been, uh, you don't have, yeah, thanks. for. It. We got some real honest folks up in here. This is good. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think you can be honest because we've probably all suffered from church hurt at some point in time. Um, I mean, even, you know, I, I grew up loving the church. I grew up a pastor's kid, um, and I, I love the church. I mean, 99% of my experience as a pastor's kid in the church was awesome. And, and even me and my family have experienced church hurt. Um, on a couple occasions, I, c- I can like literally think of the situations that I'm speaking about. Uh, we've all experienced hurt, probably, at the hands of the church. And I think you know, this is probably one reason why so many people, uh, whether they're insiders or outsiders, can say, you know, like, Christ is cool. I'm good with Christ. I love Jesus. Maybe people would even say that. But I don't know about his followers, and I don't know about his church, right? Maybe uh, there's been points where we've we've all thought the same thing, um, and, and so if, if this is you this morning, uh, we've come to the right spot in the Gospel of Matthew because Jesus is about to start uh, what some people call the Sermon on Community or the Sermon on the Congregation uh, specifically, so M- Matthew's chapter 18, 19, and 20 are um, one of the larger sermons in uh, in in the Gospel of Matthew. So when you think of Jesus' sermons, you probably think of the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's three chapters, that's like a legit, maybe the, the greatest sermon probably, that's ever been preached. Then we had though also, you may remember if you've been here for a while, uh, I think in August we were, we were in the Sermon on Mission in Matthew chapter 10. And so uh, here we come again to another sermon. It's, it's not quite a continuous sermon, There's a little bit of narrative. You'll see that. And uh, if you're wondering, Noel, we're not in chapter 18. It's chapter 17, actually. um, You can just be reminded that uh, these uh, the chapter and verse markers are not part of the original Greek manuscripts, right? They were added later. And so some, they they weren't necessarily even added perfectly, right? So we, we believe that the Bible is God's divine word. The Bible is the book that God intended for humans, uh, it's not a mistake, but the chapters and the verses are not necessarily part of what we consider to be the canon of Scripture. So anyway, uh, we're, we're, um, we're on a topic here uh, uh, of congregational ethics. Some of you are familiar with uh, Matthew 18, um, but in, in today's passage, we're going to see really uh, first like a, a reminder from Jesus. It'll sound really familiar. Uh, this reminder is an introduction to Jesus' sermon Really interesting that he would start his sermon with a reminder about his suffering and death. Um, But that must be important, that that Jesus must suffer and die. must be an important place to start. And then the next few weeks, we're going to be in a section of Scripture that talks about the three self-denials of love. We've heard Jesus say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so now we're going to read three ways that we deny ourselves in love, And in today's passage, specifically, we're going to learn about how love limits its freedom. Love limits its freedom. Uh, You'll notice that this is a tax story that we're studying today, which is kind of timely, right? We're about uh, two months away from from tax day here. Um, There's uh, another tax story that's really famous in Scripture, Matthew chapter 22. So we'll get to that one. That's the one where Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. so uh, anyway, this is uh, this is a, ta- a different tax story today, and and I want you to, to know that even though uh, the tax is called the temple tax, I really do not believe that this this story has anything really to do with our tithes, at least not specifically. Maybe in a more general sense, but in in, in like specifically this passage, I do not think is talking about the giving um, that we give to the Lord. Um, so we can get that out of our minds. So, so here we are in this, uh, section, we're about to start a sermon of Jesus and we got to know that Jesus, he's been on a bit of a road trip. So Galilee, uh, was this area of Israel, Northern Israel. It's this, these towns that are around the sea of Galilee, which is really a lake. Some people call it Lake Tiberias, but in, in this gospel, it's referred to mostly as the sea of Galilee. I kind of think that's interesting. They call it a sea, but it must have felt really big to them, you know. Um, maybe they would have called it Sea Michigan instead of Lake Michigan. I don't know. But so uh, he he's been on a road trip. He kind of went like if if you were looking at the map, he went like up and around the lake and across the lake, and now he's back. He's coming back to Capernaum or Capernaum. And uh, Capernaum is basically Jesus' hometown. It's not the town that he was born in. That would be Nazareth. There we go. Nice job. It's the town that he's living in. So kind of like me, I was born in, I don't know, Tulare when my parents had me, but now my hometown is Exeter, right? So I could say I'm from Tulare or or I might say I'm from Dinuba because that's where I went to school, but I'm also from Exeter, right? So this is how, this is Jesus' uh, place of residence, Capernaum. So he's He's around friendly people now. You get what I'm saying? The people here know him well. They're people that are like him. Galilee was a a Jewish um, province. So he's in friendly territory. And and, uh, the first two verses here, like I said, are this introduction to his sermon on on, uh, community. And uh, it, it says in verse 22 that when they came together in Galilee, so his disciples have been traveling, and here they come together in Galilee. And he says to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. So the, uh, the first thing that Jesus does in his sermon is he, he tells us to remember. He tells his disciples to remember that he's gotta die. He just said this a few uh, chapters ago, not even chapters, a few passages ago. He told people this. Remember, this is what spurred Peter to rebuke him, right? Peter was like, no, Jesus, you can't die. You can't possibly die. This can't be the way. You're the king. You're the Messiah. How could you die? So Jesus, here here he goes again, reminding his disciples, and I believe reminding us, remember, Jesus has to die. This must uh, have a way of putting the congregation under the cross. We've been up on the mountain with Jesus, the transfiguration moment, but Jesus makes sure that we're under the cross. It's almost as if before we're asked to suffer for the community, as we're going to be asked in these next few passages, we've got um, to remember that, that Jesus was the first to go in the line of suffering. Before he asks us to suffer, Jesus knows that His path is going to lead to suffering. It reminded me of 1 John 4, 19, which says that we love because he first loved. Maybe it could be said that we suffer because he first suffered. And I think if we miss the reminder of suffering, we may miss the point of the sermon. I'm just guessing that it's important that Jesus started with that reminder, he says, the son of man will be given over to the hands of men. This is a really powerful play on words. The son of man will be given over to the hands of men. The ones Jesus came for, you and me. Mankind, these are the ones who will kill him. To be delivered, it says in my translation, he'll be delivered into the hands of of men. I think that's an interesting choice of words. Uh, It reminds me of this poster that I saw when I was a kid. Carl, the mailman Malone, was a really like big deal playing for the Utah Jazz, right? He's one of the best basketball players in the NBA at that time. And the the poster said, the mailman delivers. Anyway, in any event, the, uh, the, the mail, the mail needs a mailman in order to get delivered, doesn't it? The mail needs a mailman. In order to be delivered. In Romans 8 32, it says that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. See, God gave Jesus over to his enemies for us. God gave him over. It's not like this, tra- I mean, it, it must have been sad. It certainly was sad when Jesus died, but it's not like this tragedy where God lost control, where God lost the battle. God was like the mailman who delivered the mail. God gave him over. God is the real author of the delivering over in this case. The cross, you guys, though it can seem sad, we've got to remember the cross is God's work. Christ's death is the mail. The father is the mailman. Thank you for playing along with my sports analogy. Sports analogy 101 from Pastor Noel. I'm going to grow into other types of analogies. For now, we're, we're only on sports analogies. Isaiah 53.10 says it this way. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will. He hadn't lost control of the situation. The plan was for Christ to suffer. And I believe that Jesus willingly participated as a passive object in this giving over. See, Jesus, he saw, I believe what was to come he consented to I believe what was to come and he even predicted as we've read twice now his being delivered he he knowingly put himself between man and God between me and God Christ put himself as an advocate he made himself the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah 53 the one that was forecasted or predicted hundreds of years prior. Jesus made himself the suffering servant. So to be handed over, some of your translations might say that he was handed over. It's the same type of judgment that we see in the Old Testament, but it's exercised towards Israel. In the Old Testament, we see language that would indicate that God handed Israel over. So when it says that God delivers Jesus into the hands of man, it means that he intended his son to be judged with the judgment. Men deserve. This was what it meant for God to hand over Jesus to the cross. It means that, like Israel, who deserved the judgment, Christ was going to be up on the cross in the place of the sins of Israel. Now, this uh, this reminder you you uh, you may notice uh, it, it did not stir hope in the disciples. Jesus is like, remember what's gonna remember what has to happen. My suffering, my death, my resurrection. It did not stir hope in the disciples. It says, the last sentence, verse 23, it says that it filled them with grief. They're already grieving before it's happened. It fills them with grief. I think there's yet another touch of honesty here in this passage. In a gospel that that certainly has not painted the disciples in, in a very glowing light. It's like they don't get it. Suffering, death, resurrection. All they can focus on is the suffering and the death that's to come. This is the second time now that they've completely missed the hope of eternal glory. And I think I I see two things of note in the disciples reaction and the disciples grief stricken response to this reminder. Number one, they still see no redemptive value in suffering. Uh, The apostle James, he was the half brother of Jesus, wrote a book in the New Testament. He'll later say, maybe you've heard this verse Consider it pure joy when you experience trials because suffering produces perseverance and steadfastness. This is what Jesus' half-brother said in his book. And we've heard the Apostle Paul preach the same message in the book of Romans and elsewhere. But these guys at this point don't get it. They have no understanding for the redemptive value of Jesus' suffering. So they're right there with him and they miss it. Once again, we see them missing it. The second thing that is important to notice about their grief is that the disciples have no ear to hear the good news. There was three things that he said, I've got to suffer, I've got to die, and then there's resurrection, but they didn't hear the resurrection part, did they? Again, this is the second time that they've not heard the resurrection news. They're stuck in the bad news. I wonder if you could relate a little bit this morning. Anybody ever feel a little bit stuck in the bad news, (laughs) unable to hear or get to the good news? I think this is part of what it means to be human. It must be. If the disciples are representatives of us as, as the church of Jesus, this must be a bit what it's like. I mean, suffering can do this to us. Suffering can get us stuck in the mud, fixated on the bad news, forgetting the hope a future glory found in the resurrection of Jesus. He's just said something actually quite amazing. I'm going to suffer and die, but I'm going to resurrect three days later. That's profound, and yet they don't get any of the good news. They're stuck in the bad news. So now we come to this story about the temple tax. Jesus has just for the second time predicted his suffering, death, and resurrection, and now we come to this story about the temple tax. It's important to understand the context. This story, uh, I, I think it is important to understand the context because this story can feel hard and weird. Like he f- a fish with a coin in its mouth? Like what's going on with this story? It feels sort of weird. And so I want us to just uh, focus on the main points today. And I think there's two main points that we need to focus on in the story about the temple tax. The first point is that we are God's children— And because we're God's children, we're free from the law. Jesus said the children are free. They're exempt. The second point is that as free children, we can freely, by our own choice, limit our freedom. Why? In order to love others by not causing offense. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words. Maybe you're familiar. I've become all things to all people so that I might save some. This is the second point of of the story today. So point number one, we're free from the law. We read about this in verses 24, 25, and 26. It says that after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? So Jesus has been on this road trip. I told you about the road trip. He's back to Capernaum and he's headed to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because this is where he's supposed to suffer and die at the hands of who? The religious leaders, right? Jerusalem, the the center of the Jewish religion, right? If, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. is the center of American government, right? Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish religious structure. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's on a course. And uh, who runs the temple? People that don't like him run the temple. The religious leaders, the Sadducees in particular, the Pharisees, they're the ones that rule in Jerusalem. He's got a rivalry with these guys. And and he's like picked fights up until this point. Remember Jesus said in in Matthew 12, someone greater than the temple is here. He was talking about himself. So Jesus has kind of like stirred up this controversy. He's, He's lived into it. And here we see Jesus' kingdom of God movement. It's, It's gaining momentum. He's doing the traveling thing. He's come back around the lake, and he's headed to the epicenter of Jewish faith. But he's doing it, like, totally outside the system. Jesus was a Jew, but was not behaving the way the Jews, or at least the religious leaders of the Jews, thought that he should behave. Even those that believed or recognized his messiahship were confused by his mode of operation, weren't they? Suffering? No one had a lens for this suffering Messiah. So anyway, his death will be the defeat of this Jewish leadership. And it will represent the inverted way of his kingdom, the upside down nature of his kingdom. His life will be paid as the ransom for many. This is what's about to happen. So here enter the collectors of the temple tax. And, and notice, this, it's probably not the ones who are plotting his death. So the collectors of the temple tax, we should read that as differently. It's not the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. It's not the religious leaders that are coming to collect. Supposedly, the Jews were actually quite happy to pay the temple tax. There's no record of the Jews complaining about the temple tax. These collectors were probably doing the people a favor roaming around. Hey, so you don't have to go to Jerusalem or make arrangements. We'll collect your tax and present it to Jerusalem on your behalf. So these collectors come and they ask Peter, maybe because they couldn't find Jesus. I'm not sure, but they, they ask Peter, is your teacher going to pay the tax? But this moment is like politically charged. Imagine that the people are probably watching. Jesus said that he was greater than the temple. I wonder if he'll pay the temple tax. It's a, it's super politically charged moment. It's, it's like, imagine, you know, Biden is standing there, president Biden, and he gets asked about the war on Ukraine or gas prices or something really controversial. This moment is heated. It's charged. The the pump has been primed. So what is the temple tax? I already said the people seem to be happy or at least like, uh, obliged to pay the temple tax. But the temple tax was one of five regular practices of a pious Jew. Uh, The others were pilgrimages to Jerusalem, synagogue worship on Sabbath days, participating in the yearly calendar of feasts, and then last, an organized communication with the scattered Jewish diaspora. So here's the point. Paying the tax was a fundamental sign of legitimate Jewish faith. If you were a legitimate Jew... You paid the tax and you probably didn't even complain that much about it. It wasn't that large and it went to upkeep the temple, all things that seemed reasonable to you, but to not pay the tax, to not participate in this fundamental of Jewish faith was really a sign of godlessness, the opposite of legitimate faith. So to pay the tax was to say, I'm a law abiding follower of Yahweh, the Jewish God, The one and only God. And again, not paying the tax was the opposite. It was godlessness. And the tax was old. As I said already, it dates back to the Exodus. So sometime like 1500, 1000 BC, somewhere in there. So I was just thinking like, can you imagine if there had been a tax instituted a thousand years ago, maybe 1500 years ago, and we were still paying it. It's crazy to me how long these traditions held true, but the people had been paying this tax for hundreds of years probably a thousand or more. You can read about it even. Scripture talks about it. The, the Torah, Exodus 30, 11 through 16, references this two drachma tax. So here's the tension. Jesus had routinely put himself over the Jewish religious construct, right? He had said, I, uh, I am the one that's greater than the temple. I'm here. Something greater than the temple is here. He also said in the Sermon on the Mount, remember these words, he put himself over even the law. When he said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. He also started some of those teachings by saying, you have heard it was said, but I tell you. So Jesus had put himself over the temple. Jesus had put himself over the law. And here these tax collectors come and say, so Jesus, are you going to pay the tax? <clears throat> Evidently, this was a legitimate question that they, that they could be asking. In fact, uh, notice the assumption. Doesn't your teacher pay the tax? They're saying like he's a Jew. He pays the tax, right? And so Peter, Peter quickly says yes. I wonder if Peter had seen Jesus pay the tax. I mean, he'd been following him for a while. This was an annual tax. So maybe Peter had seen Jesus uh, pay the tax. Or maybe, because we've seen this side of Peter too, maybe he was just trying to protect Jesus. So he just said yes right away in order to protect Jesus, right? We know that Peter often thought that he had to protect Jesus. Or maybe, we, maybe Peter's just willing to lie, right? We, we know that side of Peter is also true because Peter was willing to deny the Christ three times in order to save his own skin. But in any event, when Peter enters the house... Jesus knows what's going on. I love these little things in scripture because they just communicate to to us. If we're paying attention, the things that we can gloss over so easily, Jesus knows everything. He knows everything. I take such great uh, comfort in this. This is why you don't have to pray it exactly right. He cares more about your heart than he does the actual facts because he knows the facts. The whole point is, is, is the heart being drawn towards him. So Jesus already knows what's going on. I love this about Jesus. And so he, he asked Peter, from whom do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Now, in this context, uh, maybe very different than our own because our leaders pay taxes. At least they're supposed to right? And that can, that can become a bit controversial. And some of them will even brag about how much uh, they've paid in taxes, right? And then others who haven't paid as much will get the scorn of the media. Anyway, Peter responds to this question by saying, well, from others. In that day and age, the king's son was not going to pay the tax, right? The culture that Jesus was in, of course, the son of the king would not pay the tax, right? And so Jesus agrees and he says, you're right the sons of the king don't pay the tax the children are exempt the children are free <clears throat> so now i believe is where we're going to see the connection between jesus reminder of his death and resurrection in the story before see jesus death on the cross will be the atonement for our sins for yours and for mine the atonement that means that it's it's the payment for our debt that's what atonement means Jesus' death and his resurrection, they paid our debt. He's made us his children through faith. We're free. He's now the one by whom the sacrifice has been paid, and it's been paid one time for all time. There's no need for the temple. Jesus is the temple. Remember the system of sacrifice that these people have been brought up in. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you've got to go to the temple to be made right with God. You've got to offer a lamb to be made right with God. This was a system that they'd grown up in. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the one who's going to make you right with God. In fact, the book of Hebrews actually calls Jesus the great high priest. You don't even need the temple is what Jesus is saying. You're free from the temple. I am the temple. One greater than the temple is here. And your sons and daughters, through faith, not by birth, this is good news. Amen? The, does anyone not say amen when the pastor calls for amen to be said? I was just realizing. <laughs> You guys were the sons and daughters of the great high king. We don't have to pay the temple tax. We're free. It's like Denny's. Kids eat free, right? At Denny's? This is how it is. The, his children are always free. First point of the sermon the children are free, even free from the temple tax. So, what's this freedom like? I think this is the second point. Of this, of this message today. What is this freedom like? It seems as if Jesus is a tax-paying, devoted Jew. But why does he pay the tax when he's free? If he's a free child of God and we're free children of God, if Peter is a free child of God, why does Jesus pay the tax? We're going to find out the answer in, in the first sentence of verse 27. Jesus is so often indirect. It's really nice when he is direct. But we have our answer here why but so that we may not cause offense jesus says but so that we may not cause offense see it's it's for freedom that we've been set free that's galatians 5.1 we're free from paying the tax but we're also free to pay it in love free from obligation free for love uh, I think that's actually, I was reminded, you've, maybe you've seen those stickers, the little circular stickers. I think neighbor, Neighborhood Church started this, at least in our area. They maybe got it from another area, I don't know. But one of their key slogans is that they're for Vicelia. As a church, they want to be for uh, Vicelia. And I've seen knockoffs that say for Exeter. Uh, that's really cool. But we've been, we've been given freedom, not just from our obligation or religious ritual, We've been given freedom for, freedom to love. There's a reason for our freedom, so that we may not cause offense, Jesus says. See, Christian freedom, it's not, rest- it's not um, unrestricted. It's not an unrestricted ability to do whatever we want. That's called licentiousness, living by license. It's rather our liberty And our liberty is the ability to freely act in love for others. We've been freed from religion and freed to love. So what's up with the offense? This is really interesting that Jesus would try not to offend people. Because it seems like he's tried really hard to offend people. As we've been reading in Matthew's gospel. It's like, wait a minute, Jesus, all of a sudden you're you're not concerned with offending or you're concerned with offending people? Like this would be the first time, it seems, that you're concerned with offending people. He was always offending the Pharisees and the religious leaders, left and right, calling them harsh names. So why is he now worried about offense? I, I think there's a few reasons why now he's worried about offense. First of all, timing. There's a, there's a time to cause offense, evidently, and a time not to cause offense. And Jesus doesn't want to cause too much offense, Remember, he's on the path to Jerusalem. He can't get taken out before he gets to Jerusalem. So there's a timing issue here. There's a way that this needs to happen. The second thing is topic. What's the topic of the offense in this particular story? Money. How do people get when money is the source or the topic of concern? Highly offended. I guarantee you that. Highly offended. Um, especially uh, these temple leaders who are trying to gather and support their livelihood. It got me thinking a little bit, you know, the topics that have raised offense in our culture over the last number of years. Anybody get a little, again, don't raise your hands. I don't want to see them, but anyone get a little offended about some COVID mandates potentially, right? Anyone ever been offended about, you know, so-and-so drinking alcohol, you know, publicly, Uh, Anyone ever get a a little offended about having to use or or someone not using inclusive language? There's all kinds of reasons for offense, aren't there? Some people even get offended in the church about things that seem so simple or trivial as like worship music and what style of music is going to be played. I grew up in the decade, the 90s of worship war, right? It was, are we going to sing hymns out of a hymnal with the organ or are we going to sing to guitar, praise songs, etc.? Right? Are people going to raise their hands or are they going to stand still and staunch? We, we literally had two services in my church so that we could have a contemporary service and a traditional service. You know what I'm saying, right? So we've, we've taken offense over things in the past. So the topic of money, Jesus seems to know the topic of money is like a hot button. And he's just avoiding the topic altogether. Perhaps there's some topics that we should just avoid altogether. Or perhaps there's some topics that even though we're free... You may, maybe you're free to consume alcohol according to your conscience in moderation, but you're going to withhold in certain settings so as not to cause offense. Maybe you don't want to wear a mask. Maybe you don't think masks work. But in the presence of another, in order not to cause offense, you may choose to wear a mask. Not because you have to. You're free. Free from law and free to love others. Don't get controversial about the mass. I'm not making any statement about mass this morning. I'm making a statement about offense, all right? The third third thing, I think, is who. Who is involved in this situation? He's not talking to the religious leaders. He's not in front of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Those were the people that Jesus was most often not concerned about offending. In this case, he's around folks that are really close to him. I bet that he's thinking not just of the, the tax collectors, but the people around him, neighbors who are all giving and, and just like paying the tax, like as if it's not even a big deal. They're almost happy to pay the tax, it seems. So the who really matters. Jesus, he, he wasn't engaged with the Pharisees and religious leaders here. It's, it's his hometown people. And these are the people that he does not want to cause to sin. He must know these people different. He may know what could cause them to sin. If you want rules today, I have no rules for you. I got nothing but tension for you today, right? Freedom from law, freedom from ritual, freedom to love. How? I don't know. It's between you and Jesus, potentially. But the main point is that children of the high king are free to love. Side note. Jesus does not seem to think that non-payment of taxes was an impressive statement of faith. I think that we can sometimes, potentially, make the mistake of thinking that some sort of rebelliousness is a great statement of our faith. Clearly, there will be times to act rebelliously towards government or authority because of our faith. But in this instance, Jesus has determined that the temple tax is not it. It reminded me of how, um, you know, he he spoke against in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, attention-grabbing prayer, fasting, and giving. Like, he wants us to do those things. He hopes that we'll do those things, but not for public attention. Here in this case, it seems like standing up against the tax was not something to be done publicly. And so Jesus restrains himself. Sometimes compromise is necessary, it would seem. And then, of course, sometimes compromise is not necessary. Sometimes compromise, when it's, when it's according to matters that are central to our faith, that's when we don't compromise. That's when we get public about our confession. But Jesus is like, ah, the temple tax? No biggie. No biggie. I know the king and his kids are free. This is, uh, the the, the tension here is really interesting. Uh, Galatians 5.13, I think, spells it out really nicely. Because, see, we're, we're both the free children of God and the willing servant of others. In a sense, we're the free lords of all because we're sons of the king. And then in another sense, just like Jesus, who's let himself suffer as our servant, We're servants to all. Galatians 5.13 says it this way. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. All right. We're, We're to the last verse, verse 27. So what about this fish miracle? This is the really weird part of the story, I think. And so here we have this miracle that seems to be about convenience. Like, oh, I don't have, I'll just like make the money appear, right? Seems like Jesus is just, like, snapping his figure, finger. But if we've paid attention to Jesus' life, that doesn't really seem like the way that he would act, right? He's never used his miracles, really, to, like, make things, like, appear out of nowhere, at least not for his own convenience. You get what I'm saying? So, like, in the desert temptations, that was one of the temptations that Satan tempted him with, was like, oh, jump off this mountain, and your angels will save you. Like, you know, um so miracles of convenience are typically not the way of Jesus. So then what then are we supposed to make of this miracle? And, and there's there was one other place, I think, in the Gospel of Matthew that there's maybe something that could be construed as similar. Do you remember when Jesus sent his disciples across the lake? He stayed behind to pray after he had fed the 5,000. And then he just like walks across the lake to catch up to them. At least that it kind of seems a little bit like that. course, we know in that story, that story was all about teaching Peter a lesson to trust and to have faith, teaching Jesus lordship over the wind and the waves. So we we have like a couple examples maybe of these stories that seem to show Jesus performing a miracle based on convenience. And it's interesting to note that both of these stories involve Peter, who is often a disciple who uh, represents all disciples, I would say. So here Peter's faith was tested in a unique way because what did Jesus tell him to do? Go fishing, right? What was Peter by trade? And yet Jesus tells him how to fish. I know how we're going to do this, Peter. I'll tell you how to fish. This was his area of expertise. I wonder if he thought to himself, like, Jesus, I know how to fish. I think often our strengths can keep us from depending on him, can't they? We're more dependent in weakness than we are in strength. The key, the key here, you guys, the key to this miracle is that the disciple who loves, like the disciple who prays, has access to God's provision. I think provision is the whole point of this miracle. Jesus will provide us with the love that we need for others. This is powerful. He makes a way for Peter, doesn't he? He makes a way, he's like, he doesn't even stop to ask. Like, do you have? Yeah, P- oh, Peter, but you know, let's pay it. You got a couple coins? He doesn't even ask. He just provides. He provides. The fish miracle shows us that God provides for our love. I know some people are really hard to love. Some people, if we're honest, we, we want to offend. Again, you don't have to raise your hand if you agree with me. <laughs> but, it, but it's like this sometimes. And I'm here to tell you that God... Our Father, whom has granted us freedom, freedom from law, freedom from obligation, freedom from performance, he's called us freely to love others, to look to others in ways that we can prevent offense rather than causing offense. The good news is that he's going to provide a way for us to carry out this love I love that part of the miracle story. I'm way less weirded out by it now. It starts to make a lot of sense. I think the point of the fish miracle is God's provision. So this story is very specific, uh, but it's also got broad overarching implications. So specifically, it, it causes us to interact with the question, how do we respond to authorities? Whether they be governmental or whatever, maybe your boss at work. How do we interact with authorities? How can we pay our temple taxes so as not to cause offense? It gets very specific, I think, in that way. How can we give to Caesar what is Caesar's? But it's also very broad. It it goes beyond the specific because Jesus, look, he doesn't care what people think about him. Why? Because he's received the Father's blessing, and so he doesn't even—he's free from the opinion of others. This is miraculous. In and of itself, Jesus doesn't care at all what other people think about him. He knows who he is. This is the broad application of this passage, you guys. Jesus knows who he is. He knows who his father is. He knows who he's been called to be. He knows what he's been called to do. He's got intimacy with the father. We saw him up on the mountain of transfiguration. What did God the father say at that point? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You guys, we have the same opportunity for this intimacy with the father. We have the same opportunity, the same invitation to live as free children. What are we going to do with this opportunity? What are we going to do with this status as loved sons and daughters of God? What kind of free children are we going to be? You all know that if you just let your children be completely free, what can happen? (laughs) They turn into spoiled brats, don't they, right? I mean, not specifically, but you know, like some kids in some places, in other churches, can act like spoiled brats. You know, there's that type of freedom that promotes someone just living like in debauchery, really. Jesus knows that he's free not to pay the tax, but in love for others, he does it anyways. His freedom leads him not into license, but into love. This is the kind of freedom we have in Jesus. Freedom to love. Yes, we're his children. Yes, our debt has been paid, but it's, it's not been paid so that we would live for ourselves. The call of Jesus that we've heard in just these last few passages is to pick up our cross and follow him, even, even into suffering, And death. He poured his life out as a ransom for many. He died for the sins of the world. Our life in him makes us free. This is the gospel good news. But not free to live however we want to live. Rather, the grace of God has made us free to live in such a way that others would see the beauty of the gospel and enter into the same freedom. We're not free for ourselves, we're free for others. Many of us, uh, I think this morning, uh, if we're honest, we've allowed others to determine our identity. It's been important to us to not cause offense because we don't want people to be mad at us, or we don't want people not to like us. We're people-pleasing, right? We, we, we tend to chase popularity, some of us more than others. We're, we're keeping up with the Joneses in order to establish an identity, but the Christian offer is different than these offers. The Christian offer is an offer to have the same freedom of identity that Jesus had in the Father. His children are free because of Jesus. Because of his suffering, death, and resurrection, we, his children, are free. We can literally be like, some of you don't believe this about yourself that God is pleased in you. And there might be a lot of good reasons for God to not be pleased in you. But there's one reason to accept that truth. It's that Jesus has paid it all. Once and for all. Small fact about the fish miracle. How many coins came out of the fish's mouth? One coin, a four drachma coin. Their version of the $2 bill came out of this fish's mouth. One coin paid for two lives, Jesus and for Peter. Peter, the the representative disciple of all other disciples. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection have paid the price for all of us. Because of this, God the Father looks down on you, and he does not see the record of sin. He does not see the record of failure. He sees you and in you, he sees the perfect spotless record of Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we stand and we sing. This is why we get rowdy. This is why we come early to pray. We're free from all religious obligation. You guys, this, coming here, showing up on a Sunday morning is not about your obligation to please God. Your faith in Jesus Christ has put you in this position to be declared his beloved son. And because of this, we have access to, freedom to, love others. When I was in college, and I'll end with this, uh, one of my friends on the baseball team was a guy named John Whip, John Freeman Whip. we used to call him. He was a cool dude. Anyways, John used to tease me because I guess he thought I was a pastor's kid or whatever, and he would say, Pete, why don't you pray for us today uh, because you've got a direct line to God. That's, that's what he said. You've got a direct line to God. But here, here's the truth, you guys. The truth is that not just one of us has a direct line to God. The truth is that through faith in Jesus, we all have this direct line to God. So how will we administer this relationship? Our position is secure. We're sons and daughters and the children are free how will we administer this relationship will we hoard it refusing to share this relationship with others will we abuse it living like spoiled brats or will we steward it making way for others to join in let's pray